0: RPC Radio. Radio.
1: Hi, and welcome to the WorkCouch podcast, your fortnightly deep dive into all things employment. Brought to you by the award winning employment team at law firm RPC, we discuss the whole spectrum of employment law with the emphasis firmly on people. My name is Ellie Gelder, I'm a Senior Editor in the Employment Equality and Engagement team here at RPC and I'll be your host as we explore the constantly evolving and consistently challenging world of employment law and all the curveballs that it brings to businesses today. We hope by the end of the podcast you'll feel better prepared to respond to these people challenges in a practical, commercial and inclusive way and to make sure you don't miss any of our fortnightly episodes please do hit the like and follow button and share with a colleague. Today, in our feature-length Christmas special, we are celebrating the 12 days of Christmas with a look back at 12 of the key employment law and HR developments over the last year of 2023. Now, for many of you listening, 2023 will have been challenging, unpredictable and busy, You may not have felt like you've kept up with all the developments in employment law, but fear not, because I'm joined today by four employment law gurus to give us an overview of 12 key developments. They're going to help flag what you need to be aware of and why, and the key steps or actions your business should be taking. So why not settle down, perhaps with a mince pie and a cup of tea, and let us give you the download on 2023 for HR? So, a very warm welcome to our four guests. We've got Patrick Brady, partner and head of RPC's Employment Equality and Engagement team. We have Kelly Thompson, partner and ESG lead for RPC. Charlotte Reed, senior associate, and Victoria Othan, consultant. Thank you all for joining me again on the work couch. Thanks, Hello. Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Let's dive in straight away, Patrick, to a case that has just recently been decided by the Supreme Court. It's Chief Constable of the Police Service of Northern Ireland and another, and Agnew and others, Um, and it concerns the recovery of holiday underpayments. So first of all, Patrick, can you just give us a quick background to the case?
0: Hi, Eddie, Hi, everyone. Uh, it's lovely to join you for this Christmas podcast and a, um, a look back at the uh, significant stories. So, uh, as you say, this is a holiday pay case from early this year, considered by the Supreme Court. The, the core question was how far back recoverable holiday pay underpayments could go. The case also had a secondary question about the treatment of the two different sources of statutory holiday the right to four weeks holiday under the working time directive and the UK's additional 1.6 weeks holiday under the working time regulations. Now, each source has a slightly different basis for calculating holiday pay. The Supreme Court's answer to this secondary question was that all holidays should be treated as being part of a single box of what they described as consolidated holiday rights. Now, Though this answer helps in deciding how far back underpayments of holiday pay can go, it, it, it actually creates a real headache for administrating that, that pay. In um, practice, employers might, given this decision, probably play it safe and adopt a uniform single approach to calculating holiday pay. But, but look, then let's go back to the primary question. How far back should we go when remedying any holiday underpayments. Now, the barrier to backdating was the EAT's decision in the case of Bass Scotland. This was a case uh, that established recovery stops when there's a gap of more than three months between any series of deductions. Uh, the, the Bass Scotland decision was, was certainly controversial at the time. And the Supreme Court has it's agreed, saying that, where wow, there's a common failure for the underpayments, Uh, it wouldn't matter that the, 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 in effect, the intervals between unlawful deductions is in excess of three months. Uh, The deductions would still be connected. Uh, The consequence of the decision is that in Northern Ireland, claims for holiday pay underpayments can go back to 1998. The the liability for this particular case is, is potentially significant. Uh, it could be as much as 40 million. However, for Great Britain, so excluding Northern Ireland, backdating will only travel back two years. This is because the deduction from wages limitation regulations at 2014, quite a mouthful, creates a two-year backdating limit. So the impact on this uh, this island is more limited.
1: Thank you, Patrick. That's a very helpful overview of the case. Our next topic is HR's increasing focus on conduct in the workplace. Um, And Kelly, this is something we've seen a lot of in the press recently. So what's changed and what should employers be doing?
2: Yeah, it's probably one of the most kind of prolific headlines throughout 2023, isn't it? These high profile news stories around toxic workplace culture and unhealthy working cultures more generally. Um, And specifically, unfortunately, a lot in relation to kind of sexual misconduct in, in the workplace Um so in terms of just some examples of some of the headlines that we've seen this year earlier really we've seen um, Dominic Raab resigning after the Tolley investigation found that he'd behaved in an intimidating way talked about sort of abuse or misuse of power there was the Guardian investigation into sexual misconduct and um, toxic workplace culture at the CBI and the CBI then admitting to a series of failings and mistakes which in their language led to terrible consequences um the joint investigation by the times and channel 4 dispatchers which accused russell brand obviously of various instances of misconduct um in a work context and and other sto- other stories behind both uh, besides sorry both high profile and, and less high profile um you said what's what's changed and i i was thinking in many ways um in many ways nothing's changed in the sense that this behavior that we're talking about in these sorts of stories was always unacceptable um but it was never okay to bully somebody or harass, obviously, but I do think it's worth sort of stating that. But I suppose what has changed is perhaps our collective willingness to turn a blind eye to those kinds of activities or to um, to not call them out. And that's, that's a really positive thing. Um, another thing that's changed, I think, is we're seeing increasing scrutiny from different quarters from our on employees in our organizations from sort of future talent and potential talent we might want to recruit from the general public um, and also in a number of sectors from regulators like the PRA and the FCA in the, in the financial services sector, the SRA in, in law, um, taking much more of a kind of keen eye on what's going on in, in workplaces broadly from a cultural point of view. And I think as well for our kind of listeners in who are HR professionals in particular and for anyone with a sort of leadership role, it's that increasing recognition that culture is important from all sorts of different angles to attract Gen Z and, and Gen Alpha talent. They're going to make their employment decisions in large part based on the understanding of kind of the culture and the values of a business. Um, and also just to create those sorts of environments where people can actually thrive and deliver for the business as well. So there's a, there's a real kind of business critical kind of angle to it. And then businesses that are thinking about their ESG obligations, responsible business promises, et cetera part of that starts with culture. Um, And so key steps and things for organizations to be taken, I guess we always say that, you know, culture is, it's like a garden, it needs kind of proactive tending. And also it's really set by the worst behaviors that the leaders in a business are willing to tolerate. So I would say to you, if you're in your organization, do, do you think you have anyone who's too big to fail, who regardless of their behavior or their conduct would always be protected because if you do, you have a cultural problem. Um, do you have a speak up culture? Do you have a robust process for dealing with issues that are brought to the fore? Don't be the organization who shields a person and then is saying, yeah, we all knew uh, that's not a surprise actually. When something comes out, you don't wanna be in that situation for, for all sorts of reasons, including the human. Um, and then just a kind of lawyery point to finish on, I guess, is that towards the end of next year so 2024 the law will will kind of require employers to take reasonable steps to proactively prevent workplace harassment so there are all sorts of different reasons why this is exactly the right time to be sort of taking a fresh look at your policies but also your sort of behavioral expectations of your people
1: absolutely charlotte let's move on to another item that has generated a fair amount of controversy and that's um the potential repeal to the ban on employers using agency workers during strike action.
3: Yes, this is an example of the government having a crack at what they clearly see as that pesky Regulation Seven of the what I call the Conduct Regulations. The full name being the Conduct of Employment Agencies and Employment Businesses Regulations Two Thousand and Three. Um, those have been in force in various forms since the 1970s, and what Regulation Seven effectively does is prevents employment businesses supplying agency workers to cover the duties normally covered by a worker who's taking part in strike or other industrial action. Um, the government has already tried to repeal Regulation Seven, but was defeated at high court level in no uncertain terms recently. Um, but they're having another go at repealing it because they say there are questions over whether that kind of restriction, in other words, a restriction that effectively stops employment businesses offering their services to hirers who are facing strike action remains acceptable in the, in the current economic climate. Um, so there's a, there's a consultation to see views on whether there ought to be a repeal of regulation, um, of Regulation 7 the government is saying it would give businesses the option to bring in agency staff during a strike if they choose to do so, which in turn helps them to handle the strike action and causes minimum disruption to, to services and continuity, and whilst maintaining the, the current status quo of allowing workers to participate in strike strike action should they choose to do so. There's nothing employees need to do at present because we're just at consultation phase and I think we can all predict exactly who's going to fall which side of the line on this particular argument. Clearly, the government is saying the economy needs continuity and minimum service levels, whilst the unions are saying a repeal of Regulation 7 renders the right to strike completely toothless. Um, and indeed, the NASOT, which is the teachers' union, has, has been vociferous in its objections towards the the, cut, the um the proposal that regulation 7 might be repealed, I think it's just a matter of watch this space and see where we get to. OK.
1: So our fourth topic is flexible working requests. So Victoria, tell us where the law now stands on flexible working. Okay,
4: Ellie, so the background to this was, listeners may remember, back in December 22, so a year ago, there was a drive by the government to increase the prevalence of flexible working, really and to make the workplace more flexible. So it confirmed its intention to introduce reforms which would enable the right to request flexible working to become a day one right, rather than it being limited to employees who have got a minimum period of employment under their belt. So since then, we now have a particular piece of legislation snappily entitled the Employment Regulations Flexible Working Act, that received royal assent in July this year. Now, this changes the right to request flexible working so that employees no longer have that kind of quite formulaic need to explain what effects their requested change may have on an employer and employees will be entitled to make two requests in any 12-month period rather than one. In addition, employers will have to consult with employees who make those requests and decisions will have to be delivered within two months rather than three months. In addition to that, and kind of hot off the press, um, as of yesterday, in fact, the Department of Business and Trade published the Flexible Working Amendment Regulations 2023, and they provide the right to make a flexible working application applies when an employee begins employment, i.e. this is a day one right. Those regulations uh, come into force apparently on the 6th of April 2024, so a few months away. In the meantime, the Department of Business and Trade uh, has also issued a call for evidence on non-statutory flexible working, and that's designed to develop government evidence based on a non-statutory flexible working strategy. So the call for evidence closed on the 7th of November and that followed um, a publication by ACAS of a consultation document on an updated code of practice on handling statutory flexible working requests. The code uh, will accompany the new legislation that I just mentioned, So that's a whistle-stop tour around all the legal developments as far as key steps and actions for employers to take in light of all this. Clearly, what's obvious is there's a big drive and focus now on flexible working in the workplace. That's, That's the key message. And that can be a really important tool to help employers develop and foster a diverse and inclusive workplace and, importantly, to attract and retain the best talent Obviously, it goes without saying uh, that the right checks and balances have to be put in place to make sure that workloads don't become unmanageable and that those who are working from home or who have flexible working patterns are included in exactly the same way as all others who work a more traditional pattern and whose faces may be more visible on a day-to-day basis.
1: Absolutely. And we actually um, explored that topic in in much more detail in one of our previous episodes. Then we heard about your and Kelly's experiences of flexible working. So do tune into that one. Kelly, we've seen a lot this year about how employers should be dealing with gender critical beliefs, um, which is a a difficult one. So can you give us an overview of, of where the law stands on this?
2: Yeah, that's right, Ellie. We've had some really interesting um, cases on what, as you said, is a a difficult, challenging topic for for lots of people in lots of different ways. Um, The case that I want to mention is an EAT case earlier this year called Higgs and and Farmers School. And what it didn't look at was whether a gender-critical belief, so the belief that um, sex is immutable, for example, whether it didn't look at whether that could be a protected belief under the Equality Act. We know from other cases that it can Um, The reason I say it didn't look at it is because the tribunal had sort of accepted that this um person's beliefs were protected and the case looked at a different aspect, which I'll come on to. Um, In this situation, you had a Christian employee who claimed discrimination and harassment on grounds of her beliefs, including that gender can't be fluid and that an individual can't change um, their biological sex or gender, so that that was how her belief was kind of formulated. And the tribunal, as I said, accepted that was protected, but they'd said, well, actually her dismissal was about some um, posts she'd done on social media and and the content of those posts as opposed to about her belief. Um, She appealed to the EAT, who remitted it back to the tribunal because what they found was that the tribunal hadn't properly engaged with the question as to what had led to her dismissal. Was it the manifestation of her beliefs per se? or was it because she'd manifested her protected beliefs in an objectionable way and and the need to apply a kind of balancing test to that question? Um, So as I say, just pausing for a minute, we know that gender critical beliefs can potentially be protected under the Equality Act and it depends on the circumstances. Um, But Higgs is looking really at that situation where a protected belief of any kind, in this instance, um, gender critical belief, Um, potentially comes into conflict with the rights of other people, for example, trans employees here. And the law tries to strike this balance between freedom of expression and the ability to manifest one's beliefs um, in a a, a free society on the one hand against the protection and rights and freedoms of other people on the other. Um, And essentially put really simply, you know, as an employer, you can lawfully act against inappropriate actions that people take, but less so when actually what you're acting against is the protected beliefs that may be underlying those actions. And that is a really difficult line to draw in practice, Um, especially in these sorts of cases where you've got very um, kind of emotive beliefs or identities that are really cautious to people's fundamental kind of sense of self and, and they're potentially butting up against each other. What we're talking about here is kind of human beings with deeply held beliefs and identities and and that's what we're trying to sort of manage with that tightrope. So nothing's changed with this EAT case, Higgs, that I mentioned, but what they did do was give some helpful guidance as to how an employer might try to sort of strike that balance. So they drew on some earlier case law, but they kind of put it in the context of um, you're an employer and you're trying to consider how to respond to an employee that's manifested their belief, whether it's on LinkedIn or in an email or in any other kind of way what are you doing when you're sort of balancing what that versus the rights of other people that might have been impinged and deciding your action. And they said, the things that you need to have regard to are the content of that manifestation, that communication, it's tone, it's extent, like how widespread is it? The person who, who made that communication, made that manifestation, what was their understanding of the likely audience? Um, What's the extent and the nature of the intrusion on the rights of other people and consequential, consequential, um, impact on your ability to run your business Um, did the worker make it clear that their beliefs were their own or is there potential that it kind of links back to your organization and it create a reputational risk for you is there a power imbalance I thought this was quite interesting between the worker that's manifesting the belief and the individual potentially suffering an intrusion on their rights what's the nature of your business as an employer you know especially if you have services for vulnerable users and clients that might be that will be relevant to the balancing exercise And then in in kind of very classic sort of discrimination law territory here, any limitation that you're seeking to pause on on that person's manifestation of their belief, whether it's a policy saying you can't, whether it's a sort of disciplinary action in response, is that limitation the least intrusive measure available? So the least intrusive way of stopping that person kind of manifesting. The reality is it's always very context
1: specific, but I thought that was quite a useful kind of checklist for employers. Yeah, really helpful checklist. Thank you, Kelly. Moving on now to another very complicated topic um, of holiday pay, uh, which we know can cause real headaches for employers. So, Charlotte, tell us what's due to change um, and what employers should be doing to prepare.
3: Yes, it can indeed cause headaches, and there has been some draft legislation to reform holiday pay calculations for part-time workers and those with irregular hours. And the changes, they're not particularly exciting, but they're important, particularly for those who do engage workers who may have irregular hours or or on a part-time basis. And the changes come into effect in January 2024, so everyone in that situation needs to be aware of them. The government has said the changes are intended to simplify calculations for holiday pay, and the new legislation will calculate holiday pay entitlement for those with part-time and irregular hours as 12.07% of the hours worked in a pay period. The um, new calculation is supposed to increase transparency and prioritise fairness. So in other words, making sure that everyone is paid fairly um, sort of as according to the hours they've worked in a particular period. The other important change is that rolled up holiday pay for part-time workers and those who work irregular hours will also be allowed this enables employers to effectively include an amount for holiday pay on top of the rate the, the, sort of the hourly rate in regular pay packets and this is quite interesting in the sense that it's a return to a perceived like a previous position many years ago although unfortunately I'm still just about old enough to remember it where rolled up holiday pay was permissible um but it was made unlawful as a result of concerns that workers might not be incentivized to take leave because they would potentially earn more holiday pay by staying at work and working longer hours, et cetera. So in effect, it was, it was ruled unlawful as a result of quite specific health and safety concerns. There are still going to be concerns about that. And in fact, 45% of those who took part in the, in the consultation preceding the, the draft legislation said they didn't support rolled up holiday pay because of that, that very concern. Um, in terms of take home points, practical points, familiarisation with the changes and liaising with payroll departments, etc., to ensure they're aware of what needs to be done, that, that's, that's the real takeaway point. But also just remembering the changes only apply to those who work part time or irregular hours and, and agency workers. For everyone else,
1: nothing changes. Thank you, Charlotte. Really helpful overview there. Our next topic relates to transfers of undertakings, so specifically the rules around uh, consultation with affected employees, so Kelly what's changed here? Can I just say I'm thrilled that we haven't missed Tupi out of this festive
2: roundup because no, no festive period is festive enough without Tupi, and I sound sarcastic but I am not being sarcastic. correct mince pie, a little bit of transfer of undertaking. No Christmas treat would be complete, no. Yeah, thank you. Okay, well, well listen, brace yourselves because it is a treat. Um, so, in actually, it is a bit of a treat because the government did a really quick consultation process. So, in May, they published a policy paper, quickly followed by a consultation paper, proposing changes to TP, information consultation, as, as you said, Ellie. And then in November, published their response and the draft regulation. So pretty snappy actually, from what we've kind of become more accustomed to in terms of fairly lengthy um, consultation processes and, and quite a gap between end of that and, and, and the results coming out. Um, so the plan at the moment is for a mem- uh, the TUP to be amended by regulations that come in on the 1st of January, 2024. So New Year's treat, and it will apply to any TUP transfers that take place on or after the 1st of July, 2024. Um, And it's quite a simple change that essentially means that if you are involved as an employer in a SHP transfer and you as an employer either have fewer than 50 employees total, or regardless of how many employees you've got, kind of overall, there are fewer than 10 involved in the particular transfer. So in either of those scenarios, there will be the possibility to not elect representatives and to instead um, look to consult directly with employees so quite a welcome practical relaxation i think for many oftentimes if you've got a transfer that's only involving a small group of employees those individuals often prefer to be consulted with directly anyway um so quite helpful i think from both an employer and potentially employee perspective just a few little warnings or kind of words of caution i think for employers it does it's not going to apply if you've got a trade union or an existing appropriate representative body in place you can't bypass that and this is for a scenario where you would otherwise have to elect um also really important to check terms of existing service agreements because you might have a cheaper transfer that's happening next september but it's it's governed by a contract you have in place with your outsourced service provider for example that that will not be those those contracts won't um in all but the most unusual circumstances be automatically amended by this this legislative change so you're going to have to check those contracts as well before you start going off and not electing Um, and then I think it's just remembering that there are sometimes reasons why actually having representatives are um, the best thing to do even in what might otherwise look like a relatively small transaction but if you're a business that's got 50 employees and they're all involved in a transfer or they're all impacted by a transfer might actually be easier logistically and it might actually be better for the individuals to elect representatives so it's always sort of taking a case by case decision
1: Okay, so number eight on our list um, is probably one of the most talked about topics in general, uh, especially uh, in the HR world. So it's AI um, and its impact on the workforce. Patrick, I know you're advising many clients on this area at the moment. Can you summarise what um, employers' concerns are or what employees' concerns are um, and how employers can tackle these?
0: I'll try my very best. I'm quite I've got a couple of minutes Uh, to describe a uh, truly uh, amazing, interesting, existential, however you want to describe it, topic. Um, Let's do a bit of background first. So uh, broadly, we're moving into our fourth industrial revolution. And as many of us know, AI is currently the the poster child and focus of this new age. Uh, We know that the convergence of technologies, including AI, will fundamentally alter workplaces maybe not immediately but certainly in the um, medium term jobs will evolve because tasks undertaken by people will be better performed by AI and complementary technologies. Now academic research predicts uh, quite a startling figure more than 50% of jobs are susceptible to automation. The precise percentage varies. Uh, Some research suggests it could be up to 80%. And if business leaders listening uh, are looking for a more sobering statistic, research from the US suggests that if the full complement of technological capabilities, including AI, were deployed, about 50% of all tasks could be automated. Uh, But all, all is not lost. Bear in mind that On the eve of the second industrial revolution, 40% of the workforce was engaged in agriculture. Now it's 2%, but uh, impressively, unemployment remains low, meaning new jobs are created. That provides a picture of some optimism. Now, initially, basic AI will replace narrow tasks. This is because the combination of computing power and the volume of data makes the predictive capability of AI more effective than, actually than any of us in undertaking a concise and defined data dependent task. Uh, This feeds into uh, a a vision where, for for corporates, where AI will free up uh, precious expertise for more complex high value tasks that requires actually our uniquely human emotional skills, skills that AI can't currently replicate With this in mind, organizations are looking increasingly to embed machine learning. Now, that will include generative AI into their business operations. However, the speed of adoption must be balanced against governance, regulatory, legal and ethical risks. The the more obvious concerns which are frequently discussed include privacy, confidentiality, bias, IP, accuracy, um, or as it's more colloquially referred to and in part to soften uh, the impact, hallucinations. Um, And then there's explainability. Can AI be explained? In, In the workplace, the challenges really do come into sharp focus for AI that facilitates decisions that directly impact on an individual's work opportunities. These might include, for example, AI that automates recruitment, performance assessments, or monitoring. And it's in relation to these automated tasks that concerns about employee privacy and the risks of bias and discrimination are most stark AI in a nutshell. So with all of that in mind, many organizations are going to be working through uh, what they should be doing, what steps and processes should be in place to um, most effectively implement AI combined with technology to advance their organizations, whilst at the same time diminishing any of the risks I've just spoken about. Uh, and there are a few uh, obvious steps. First one is education uh, of all um, individuals in the workplace who will be engaging with AI. So they properly understand, importantly, is capability. And often that capability is simply uh, not as significant as we... Uh, expect it to be but that understanding i think is hugely important um the organizations are more looking more closely at establishing governance boards um which will look uh carefully at the impact in relation to the introduction of ai particularly with a view to mitigating uh, risks around privacy uh bias um breaches of ip and confidentiality equally uh, those which we talked about and having more rigorous processes in relation to AI which is regarded as high risk AI and that's AI which will influence judgments particularly in relation to as we talked about as I talked about uh, workplace opportunities for individuals.
1: That's excellent Patrick and we will be looking at AI much more closely in season two of The Work Couch in 2024 so do look out for that one. Number nine on our list is menopause support at work. And Victoria, we spoke about this on our very first episode of The Work Couch back in March, but just remind us why this topic is Uh, so important on the HR agenda at the moment.
4: I mean, this year has absolutely flown, Um, but it's an area which there's just loads going on and loads has gone on. Uh, It's hard to kind of um, pinprick at a point when it all started, but I guess... Back in 2021, there was a, um, a women inequalities committee inquiry regarding the menopause, and that resulted in a, a report in July. It was dated the 28th of July 2022, menopause in the workplace, and many regarded as the key points come out of that the, the recommendation that menopause be deemed a protected characteristic under the Equality Act. I'm assuming, obviously, that all our listeners will be aware that it's it's not and that to be able to bring a, a claim for disability discrimination, an employee has to get over the hurdle of being regarded as disabled under the Equality Act in accordance with the statutory criteria. So following that recommendation, the government rejected it in, in January of this year. So that was the situation where we were up to, really, at the time of our Previous podcast episodes. Since then, um, various things have taken place. So, first of all, in March, the government appointed a so called menopause employment champion. And that champion has introduced a four point plan, which is initially designed or intended to focus on various sectors, including hospitality, retail, care, manufacturing. The four point plan includes a portal for employers within a particular sector to share best practice an allyship programme for women and then menopause friendly employers to act as advocates within a sector and also a sector based communications plan so that was back in March fairly recently in October actually on the 18th of October the government published a policy paper which included new guidance for employers and, and on the same day An all party parliamentary group um, published a manifesto for menopause, which called on all political parties to commit to various reforms ahead of the next general election. The employment aspects of those reforms included, for example, requiring employers with over 250 employees to introduce action plans. Uh, providing specific guidance to small and medium enterprises and introducing tax incentives. Curiously, this, I think this is an interesting one, introducing tax incentives to in- encourage employers to integrate menopause into occupational health. Alongside that has been some case law. So in October, a case of uh, Rooney and Leicester City Council, a tribunal began hearing the case of uh, Rooney and Leicester City Council and this is the first case where someone's menopausal symptoms have been deemed by an appeal court to potentially, and I, I emphasise that word, potentially amount to disability for the purposes of the Equality Act. So, preceding this, the EAT, or that's the Employment Appeal Tribunal, set a legal precedent back in February 22, when it concluded that menopausal symptoms could uh, meet the legal definition of disability. And it remitted that specific question, the question of whether or not Miss Rooney was disabled, as far as those symptoms were concerned, back to the Leicester Employment Tribunal. It considered that that particular question needed a fresh and, and careful analysis based on the facts of that particular case. So the tribunal reheard the case on the 2nd of October 2023. So far, uh, there has been no decision that we are aware of, but it is awaited at the moment. So the, the key points for employers to take away from from all those developments, I think, again, the same as flexible working, the direction of travel is really clear. Menopause has stopped being a taboo subject. It needs to be talked about. It is being talked about. It's become part of common parlance now, I think, in the workplace, particularly in bigger, larger organisations who may have many numbers of female employees who have reached the really the pinnacle of their career or their careers at a time when they may be affected by the menopause. So it's really important to include menopause awareness as part of a wider diversity, equity, inclusion strategy. So this could include consulting, for example, with employee resource groups or committees. If employers don't engage with these issues, again, Similar to flexible working, there's a real business risk of of losing a valuable pool of talent from particular organisations and also the issue of of brand perception as it becomes more discussed and as wider awareness of this particular issue becomes ingrained in society and in, in workplace culture.
1: Charlotte, can we talk next about uh, the rules on dismissal and re-engagement or as some people refer to it as the fire and rehire rules? Where does the law stand on this now?
3: Yes, we have incoming when parliamentary time allows the Code of Practice on Dismissal and Re-engagement, which we'll just call the code slightly ominously. It was first published on 24th of January, 2023, um, the government had asked ACAS to look at practices around changing contractual terms and conditions, and that was partly against the backdrop of P&O allegedly failing to consult with employees and dismissing about 800 of them in 2022. So um, that consultation ended in, in April 2023, and, and the finalised code is, as I said, intended to be brought into force soon. The code sets out expectations on employers in situations where... Um, an employer decides that it wants to make changes to its employment terms and conditions and it, this is the language, it envisages that if the employees do not agree to those changes, the employer may dismiss them and either offer them re-engagements on the new terms or hire other employees to perform the relevant roles on those terms. So the guidance, is, it, it sets out expectations, but is also intended to provide kind of practical guidance to employers in terms of what they need to do. There's, crucially, no ban on firing or rehiring. That remains lawful practice. Rather, the code is supposed to encourage the employer to take steps to explore alternatives to dismissal, use dismissal and re-engagement as a last resort, provide information um, so as to allow the employer to engage meaningfully in consultation with employees and trade unions and, and other employee representatives in good faith, and to encourage the employer to avoid using threats of dismissal to pressurize employees into agreeing the new terms. In terms of what the code says and the potential consequences of not following the code, the key points are are broadly as follows. The code applies irrespective of business aims of the employer and irrespective of its reasons for seeking the changes to those terms and conditions. The focus is, of course, on consultation with employees and and unions. Crucially, consultation will be required regardless of the number of employees who might be affected by the proposals. In other words, there will be an obligation to consult even where fewer than 20 employees would be affected by the changes. But the draft code apparently doesn't apply to redundancy dismissals and I think there's potentially quite an interesting interplay between situations where consultation might be required in any event but I'll, I'll come on to that in terms of penalties for not following the code the position will be similar to the position of the ACAS code of practice on disciplinary and grievance procedures isn't followed there's no there will be no direct penalties but whether the code has been followed or not will be admissible in in evidence in either tribunal or court proceedings and the tribunal can award an uplift of up to 25 percent of any award if the employer has unreasonably failed to comply with the code That works both ways. They can equally decrease an award by up to 25% where an employee is the one who has unreasonably failed to comply with the code. In terms of take-home points, the code recognises that fire and rehire is still going to be legitimate practice and emphasises that dismissal is supposed to be a last resort. I question that because I think it already is a last resort. I think most employers don't want to get to that point Equally, I feel that a lot of what's set out in the code is already regarded as, as best practice, particularly in situations where you may have to fire and rehire. Quite often, I think our view is that actually, potentially, um, considerations under TULCRA apply if you're proposing to dismiss 20 or more employees, even if it's in the context of a rehire as opposed to a redundancy So I think there's potential for quite a lot of confusion where there's interplay or where there's another redundancy consultation process potentially in the background or in the offing. And of course, the usual considerations will apply in the context of of making changes to terms and conditions such as assessing whether a group with a particular characteristic is impacted by the proposed changes more than a group without the protected characteristic, making sure you provide plenty of notice of, of the specific change having a think about whether a phased introduction might be needed there and ensuring employees have had full opportunity to ask questions about the change and are giving informed consent, etc.
1: Thank you, Charlotte. So our penultimate item on our Christmas list is industrial action, which Charlotte mentioned earlier in relation to agency workers. So, Victoria, what's the latest on the government's moves to ensure that there are minimum service levels in certain sectors?
4: Yeah, so the background to this really, ignoring any political interpretation, is a purported concern of the government about the effect of strike action on essential services. And we all know really where this has come from with the recent strike action and other industrial action in various sectors. So what has changed is again, a very snappy title, um, a piece of legislation called the Strike Minimum Service Levels Act 2023. That received Royal Assent on the 20th of July this year, and it amended TUCRA, which is the piece of legislation that we're all familiar with and that Charlotte was just talking about then, to allow minimum service levels to be applied in the fields of health, transport, education, fire and rescue, etc. I won't list all of the particular sectors, but the way the whole thing is going to work is as follows. So, where a union calls a strike in a service to which the minimum service regs apply, the employer may, first having consulted with the union, give the union something called a work notice, and that's going to identify the workers that are required to work and the work they're going to be required to do to ensure that this minimum service level is met during any strike. So, it's quite a significant change with potentially serious effect. What could happen if a trade union does not do this? So if it doesn't act appropriately on receipt of a work notice issued by an employer is that a union could face legal action um, if it fails to take reasonable steps, quote unquote, to ensure compliance by any union member identified in that work notice. And then employees who take strike action contrary to the work notice they will lose their automatic protection from unfair dismissal for industrial action. So you can see from that why this has become such a battleground between the government and trade unions. So after debate, the government announced it would introduce a statutory code of practice to really define what reasonable steps a trade union is required to take and what they look like, what they are. And that was after quite an amount of consultation. So the Code of Practice itself was just recently published on 6th of December and it came into force on 8th of December, really very recently. And we'll include a a link to the code on the podcast page. The code applies to specific sectors, including health, education and transport services, which is uh, quite timely given the further recent industrial strike action. In addition to that, on 16th of November, the Department of Business and Trade issued guidance on the issuing of work notices, the work notices that I mentioned before. So, this is going to be quite a new and significant development for employers who are in those sectors and who have unionised workforces. It may not affect many employers at all if they don't work in those sectors. It's worth noting, though, that Labour has repeatedly said it will repeal the Act if it gets into power and Scottish ministers have announced that it will refuse to cooperate
1: with the new regulations. Finally, and this is our most recent development actually, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in the case of Independent Workers Union of Great Britain and Central Arbitration Committee and Deliveroo. So Patrick, can you give us a rundown of this case, what it means for employers?
0: Of course, Elliot. It's a case about employment status and collective rights. The case goes back seven years when a group of delivery riders from Kilburn in North London, yes, that's a hotbed of independent thought and revolution, which is fighting back against the uh, Shoreditch hipsters, my world, Um, when they first look to gain recognition for collective bargaining. Under our domestic legislation, independent trade union can only secure trade union recognition in relation to the term is workers. And as we know, To be a worker, the person, or in this case, the rider, had to be engaged under either an employment contract or alternatively a contract to perform work personally or provide personal services. So that's the starting point. The riders had to be workers under our laws. And through interestingly, through all stages of the litigation, the courts were clear that the riders, because of a genuine unfettered right of substitution, couldn't be workers. Now... Ordinarily, this should have been the end of the claim, but as a guiding principle, our legislation, including TOLRICA, which is our statute that governs the availability of collective rights, must be, as we know, compatible with related rights under the European Convention on Human Rights. This then takes us to Article 11 of the Convention, which enshrines a right of freedom of association, including to join a trade union. That these freedoms are protected where there's a employment relationship. Uh, now that's as this term is understood by European law. Broadly, uh, that term reflects our worker principles, albeit its true meaning is is described by a particular international labour organisation recommendation. There's a level of detail which I won't go into, but uh, not least because it's it's Christmas. So I'll look. I'll I'll skip the technical stuff and go straight to the answer. In a nutshell, the Supreme Court said that where there's a genuine right of substitution, so that's where practice reflects what's on paper, the riders won't be in an employment relationship. As said, that's akin to our worker status. It's only if a genuine and sufficiently unfettered right of substitution is absent that the courts will look to engage a broader, more holistic and balancing review of the features of the relationship to determine if the dominant feature is a worker one.
1: Well, thank you all so much to my wonderful guests for that whistle-stop tour of 2023's Employment Law Developments, our Christmas gift to you all. We hope you found this helpful in getting to grips with what's changed this year and how employers should be responding. In the meantime, we wish you all a very happy festive period and we look forward to you joining us again for season 2 of The Workout which will kick off on the 17th of January. We have a brilliant lineup of guests, so please do hit the follow button to make sure you don't miss an episode. RPC Radio If you would like to revisit anything we discussed today, you can access transcripts of every episode of The Workcouch podcast by going to our website, www.rpc.co.uk slash theworkcouch. Or if you have questions for me, Patrick, Kelly, Charlotte or Victoria, or perhaps you've got some suggestions of topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do get in touch. You can email us at theworkcouch at rpc.co.uk. We'd really love to hear from you.